Good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Paul Gilbert. If we don't know each other, I'm the lead pastor. So glad you're here. Uh, We are continuing our journey through the book of Genesis. Speaking of another book, um, Cormac McCarthy, who writes kind of a dark genre of book, has a has a sort of an infamous book titled "No Country for Old Men," and in it, McCarthy describes this this scene, this chaotic scene um, out in the desert of of the Texas winterland, the wonderland. And there's a and, and as there's a hunter, and he's out hunting, and he's in this desolate region, and he comes across what is obviously some sort of bad situation, some sort of drug deal gone bad, and there is this carnage as he walks upon the scene, a carnage of vehicles and weapons and stolen goods and destroyed property, and there might even be a dead person or two there, I'm not sure, but anyway, and, and as, the, as the feds and the cops and FDLE and everybody else shows up on the scene, the, the deputy leans over and remarks to the sheriff, he says, this sure is a mess. And the sheriff, which is, of course, in the Tommy Lee Jones accent, which I won't do, well, if this isn't the mess, it'll sure do till the mess gets here, right? And, and in a lot of ways, that's exactly what we have in this passage. Man, if this isn't the mess, I mean, it's sure going to do till the mess gets here. This is a picture, is it not, of relational carnage. Now, as we jump in this morning, you know, sometimes it's stories like this that make people kind of incredulous about the Bible or attempt to discredit the Bible. And the, and the thinking kind of goes something, like, goes something like this. Well, I mean, come on. Every time I look in the Bible, there's one of your great heroes, one of your great characters, one of these models, paragons of virtue and of faith, royally screwing up. What's up, What's up with that? You know, in a lot of ways, I don't think that discredits the Bible I think in a lot, of, a lot of ways, it makes it more plausible, and here's what I mean. Almost all other world religions, philosophies, points of view, do everything they can to hide the flaws of their central characters, right? Sweep them under the rug, lest if you know the real truth about so-and-so, then this will somehow discredit the thought or religion or school of philosophy or what have you. But, you know, the Bible takes the opposite tact, Because, see, the the Bible is not fundamentally, church, about a set of morals and good moral examples for us to emulate, although there's some of that. Nor is the Bible primarily about a set of instructions that if you do these things, then somehow you will gain worth and grace and favor in the sight of God. It's actually the opposite. See, the Bible is fundamentally a book about God. It's about his story. And it's about what he does to speak into, come into the broken lives of broken people. And so we don't have to be afraid. We do not have to fear of showing the worst about ourselves or the worst about these characters because that's the whole point. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we have the gospel. And that's what the Bible wants to declare to us from start to finish. And this is exactly what we are going to find in this passage this morning. We are going to find a big mess. That will be point number one. And then, and most importantly, we are going to find the very mercy and the sovereign grace of God. And that will be our point number two. So let's dive in to the mess. Here we begin in verse 8. And it tells us, now remember last week, 
Sarah, at the ripe age of 90, conceived a child, bore a child. Abraham is 100, and now it is three years later. It's feast day. This is not like your little ordinary uh, birthday party for your three-year-old at Killarney Way Park, although that's precious, okay? This is like a seven-day, it-is-on kind of feast. And the occasion is that Isaac has been weaned. That's why we know it's three years later. That was the traditional window when a child um, stopped nursing, and and it marked this sort of this entrance into childhood where you've escaped the, the perils of infancy, you've survived infancy, which was a treacherous time in that, in that day, and, and you are now being sort of fully recognized as the rightful heir to the patriarchal position in the clan. And so this is a, a hugely festive day. It's, a, it's an exciting day. It's an awesome day, except for Ishmael. It's not so fun for him. In fact, it's kind of, it's kind of a stinky day. <laughs> to, to use a Lord of the Rings analogy, he's kind of been the steward of Gondor. But now he has to take a seat and make way for the rightful king and heir. And of course, that is Isaac. Now, to understand the full magnitude of the mess that we see here, we do need to go back a little bit to Genesis chapter 16. And, re- and remind ourselves what, what has gotten us to this place. Because as with almost every mess that we find ourselves in, and certainly these guys find themselves in, there's always a backstory, isn't there? Remember that God had made promises to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to give you a child. And it's through this child that I'm going to bless the nations of the world. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a promised Messiah. I'm going to save the nations through this child. And he gave them this promise, and then silence. Nothing. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and it seems like they probably waited about 10 years. And as is so often the case, when we grow tired of waiting on God, we decide that it might be helpful if we helped God a little bit, right? Ever been in that place? Let's just encourage God we, we know he's sovereign, we know he's powerful, but he, he, he could probably benefit from my help just a little bit right here. And that's what they did. In fact, they concocted a scheme. They took matters into their own hands. And Sarah said, I'm, I'm tired of waiting on a child. I, I don't, I mean, the, the promises of God, that was 10 years ago, and they're distant in my memory right now. Abraham, to ensure that, that I have a child, that we have a child, here's what I want you to do. And I just have to wonder how this discussion went. I want you to go into to our servant, Hagar. And I want you to, to, to be with her, and I want her to conceive. And when she conceives a son, I'll take that son, raise him as our very own, and thus the line will be propagated. And that was their solution. Now, what's interesting about the way they ran at this, which I kind of call trying to make an end run, okay, around the, the providence of God, so to speak, is that, it, and by the way, when we do that, it never works out, does it? It always sounds so good at the time. But, but it never works out, and it certainly didn't work out for Sarah. Because it tells us in Genesis 16 that instead of this being a great blessing, it became a great curse. Because all of a sudden, her maidservant, Hagar, who, who, who was a lowly servant, now had social standing in the clan. 
She now had had kind of an equal footing. She had borne the rightful heir to Abraham, and Sarah is enraged. Sarah is jealous. Sarah becomes bitter, and she lashes out at Hagar, and she says, Hagar, take you and that no good little child of, I don't know what she said, but you get the idea, and go wander around in the wilderness for a couple of weeks, and I don't ever want to see you again. And we know that story. That God, by his miraculous supernatural grace, saved Hagar, told her to go back to Abraham for, for Hagar to, to, to be faithful, to be obedient, that he's got this covered. That he is in fact going to take care of all this. He's going to bless Ishmael. She doesn't need to be concerned. She just needs to trust. But despite all of that, it is now 15 years later, and the reverberations of that mess we see all over this passage. See, it might have been a quote-unquote long time ago, but it certainly hasn't been forgotten. Certainly not forgotten when day after day after day, Sarah fixates on Ishmael and Hagar, and and she's reminded of the sort of mess that she's made of this whole situation. But now, for Sarah, it's a new day, right? And just like the passage last week hinged on this idea of laughter, so does this passage. So look down at verse 19 for a second. And there it says that they're getting ready for this feast. And I'm sorry, that's not verse 19, uh, that should be verse 9. And it says, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, like we said last week, laughing in the Hebrew can have all sorts of meanings with different sorts of connotations. But here, it clearly takes the form in the Hebrew to denote this idea of mocking, of disdain, of, of, of scorn, of ridicule. Ishmael directing this towards Isaac. And you can, you can imagine in Ishmael's place, the sort of resentment and bitterness as he's, as he's being cast aside and put aside. Now, we may look at that and say, well, well that, that's great, Pastor Paul. We understand his, his hurt, but come on, this sounds kind of like middle school, right? You know, one guy looking down in scorn at the other, one guy making fun of another. But I, but I think there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. And I think Paul gives us a clue in Galatians 4 when he tells this story again 2,000 years later. And here's what Paul says is actually happening. He says, but at that time, just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, right? He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, that's Isaac, who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. That word persecute, that's a much stronger word. That means to harass, to make trouble for, to molest, to pursue after. In other words, what appears to us on the surface to be merely a point of tension is in actuality, and we're going to understand this as this passage unfolds, it's a hostile situation. This past um, weekend, the, the elders and pastors from our three congregations here at Killarne and at Midtown and at East, we all went on a, an elder overnight retreat. And, and the place that we were staying <clears throat> has, some, uh, has some domesticated critters. Can I just call them out? And, and among this is this brood of chickens and one giant ornery rooster. Okay, 
And let's be honest, this rooster thought he was big stuff, okay? And he was actually very scary. But anyway, we, we would look at him and he'd prance around and he would claw. I was going to do it with, well, they get, is this on video? Yes. Yeah, so he'd claw with his foot and he kind of stare you down, okay? And you're like, eh, that's a little scary. I'm just going to kind of steer away. And there's like some, some tension there, right? You could see his laughter of disdain. But let me tell you something. If you made the mistake of turning your back on that rooster, like Rob Pfeiffer did, you are in big, big trouble. That guy comes charging. He's like a velociraptor with his claws up in the air, and he's doing this sort of number. He's in full attack mode. His talons are slashing. I've always wanted to say talons in a sermon. There we go. What appeared to be a point of just tension was actually like a point of real threat. That's what's happening in this passage, and Sarah sees it. Sarah sees it. She knows there can only be one lion. She knows there can only be one king of the savannah. And her mother bear instincts kick in. And look what it says she does in verse 10. She comes to Abraham. Abraham always seems to be the one people are coming to, right? So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her Son. Now, that word, cast out, it literally means to drive away. As in, Abraham, don't, don't just send them to the little kid's card table at the Thanksgiving dinner. Like, just don't demote them. But, but Abraham, put them outside the camp. Put them out in the wilderness to, to, to I don't care what is going to happen to them, but they're not going to be here anymore. It literally means expunge expel, cast away. And you can understand why it says in the next verse that Abraham was displeased. Not just displeased, but very displeased. It's like Jack Nicholson saying in A Few Good Men, there's danger, and then there's grave danger, right? And this is, this is, this is very displeased. And of course he's displeased. It tells us why. Because of his, on, it says he was displeased on account of his son. This was still his boy. Okay. Despite the mess that had gotten him there, despite the ill-gotten, the illy concocted scheme, this was still his son. And he is asked to make an impossible choice by Sarah, right? It's either us or them you choose. What would you do in such a mess? What would you do if you were Abraham? Where would you turn? You know, there's a movie that Meryl Streep starred in a number, a couple decades ago called Sophie's Choice, and it's about a Holocaust survivor, a mom who survived Auschwitz. And it tells her story in flashbacks on her life And it shows this poignant scene where she had to make an impossible choice. You see, she had two children, and they were on a train. And she knows that both of them, and she is told that she can take one child with her, only one. And that the other will go to the concentration camp for certain death. And she knows knows not to choose is to choose. Not to choose will be to consign both of them to death. And she has to choose one child 
over the other, and it's the most horrific, impossible kind of choice any parent could have to make. And here Abraham is confronted with such. His wife and the mother of his other child are at odds. There's two competing lines. There's been an ultimatum. He feels trapped. And let's, let's face it, this is a, is a ginormous mess. This is, this is, from a human perspective, irreconcilable, too complex. Now here's a question for us as we sort of sit in, and hopefully this kind of gives you a better sense of like what the poignancy of what's really happening here. But let me ask you this morning, can you relate... Maybe this morning you're in the middle of a mess. Marital, financial, relational, legal, health. Maybe it's been a mess that's been thrust upon you. Like you didn't ask for the mess, the mess just showed up. And it's on your doorstep, maybe literally. Maybe you've been blindsided. Maybe this is a mess of your own making. Maybe this is a mess that you know very clearly when the genesis of this mess was, and you can point to the day and time. Or maybe you're not in an acute crisis, but you think back to the messes you've made prior in your life, and for some of those, they just linger, right, like a cold. They linger like a cloak of shame around your shoulders, and no, no matter how much time passes, there's always something there to remind you of that. Maybe you're in the middle of a mess and you just don't know what to do. Now here is where this passage takes a vitally important pivot. And here's what you need and I need to remember as, as we make the turn here and talk about the mercy of God. Mercy does not negate the fact that there's a mess in our life and sometimes that mess is irreconcilable humanly speaking, in this life. Sometimes there's certain things that can't be undone. But what we're going to find here in the rest of this passage is that whatever the mess is, if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, that mess is not the defining reality of your life. No matter what it feels like, no matter what it looks like, no matter... If everything in your soul screams otherwise, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is a greater, there is a more important reality at work in you, and it's one that's work, at work here for, for every character in this story, and it is truly the merciful grace of God. And so we want to spend our last bit of time here unpacking that, because as we do, I think you're going to see God's mercy is all over this passage. God's mercy doesn't negate the mess, but it, but it writes over it in a way that only the gospel can do. All right, let's look there. Now, what would you expect to happen next when we think about God's mercy? Well, when I think about what would be merciful in this situation, I think, well, God... I'm sure you're going to show up to Hagar and Ishmael just like you did 15 years ago, and you're going to return them to Abraham's tent, and you're going to preserve them, and everything's going to be just fine. That would be my idea of mercy. And by the way, when we think about the messes 
in our life, the messes that have caught us up in them, all of us have a desired outcome, don't we? All of us have, a, have an idea that, that if God would simply do this, if God would simply work in this way, that's mercy. And as we're going to see, God sometimes has a much broader, bigger, clearer, and I'm going to say it, glorious vision of mercy than we can ever have. And I say all that because you have to brace yourself for what God tells Abraham in verse 12. Look there. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Well, let me say what I think this means and what, it, and what it doesn't mean. I don't think for a second that Sarah's intentions in all this were noble. I don't think Sarah's intentions here were as clean and as pure as the wind-driven snow. She just had Ishmael and Hagar's best interests in mind. I don't think so at all. I think she is still in that place of hurt, of shame, of bitterness that she's been in the last 16 years. I don't think she particularly cared what would happen. I think there is still a root of bitterness in, in her life. I don't think in Sarah's mind she intends this for good. However, however, church, Sarah was more right than she knows. You see, here is where we have to see how God's providential mercy and grace, his sovereign will, interacts with what is oftentimes our worst sorts of intentions and molds them, shapes them, writes over them to actually, and actually use those things and make those things to be the very things God uses to deliver his mercy and his grace to us. And let me kind of unpack that a little bit and go to another passage to show you where I think we see this, by the way, all over the scripture. And it's a vital category we have to have to make sense of God's providence in our life. Remember that God had said that Isaac was the child of promise. But understand something. As long as Ishmael was around, the inheritance in the line of Isaac was going to be threatened. They're, both could not coexist in that house at the same time. And because Ishmael was the older and the more established, it is, it is not an exaggeration to say that the very line of promise is threatened here. We know that, that the, the child of promise, as he is fighting for his very survival, is in an incredibly precarious position. God had made a promise that it was going to be through Isaac. But I want you also to consider, to remember this, that God had made a promise to Ishmael, right? God had made a promise to Ishmael to say that he was going to bless Ishmael. And in a human way, although he was not a part of the covenant line of blessing, in a humanly earthly sort of way, he was going to make Ishmael a great name. But as long as these two were together... Neither of these other things were possible. And the way that he chose to execute his mercy, 
now this is important, was through Abraham's obedience. You have to understand that Abraham, for Abraham, this undoubtedly made no sense at all. This has to be excruciating. When it says in the text, look back to the text. When it says in verse 14 that so Abraham rose early, I think the reason Abraham rose early, he never went to sleep, right? He never went to sleep. This is his son, and promise or no promise, he is having to say goodbye. Because in this, God has a greater good, but at this point, Abraham doesn't know what that means. He just has a very general kind of promise that God is going to bless all the nations of the earth through this appointed Messiah that's going to come through the line of Isaac. And let me just say something, folks. We are here this morning in part for a million reasons, but not less than the fact that God had Abraham respond in faith and obedience. It preserved the line of promise. And the reason that Abraham did this is that he had to take God at his word. And, and, and one of the things that's, that's fundamental about navigating any of the messes in our life that we find ourselves in, we have to make a fundamental baseline decision right up front, am I going to trust God or am I going to pull an Ishmael? Am I going to pull a Hagar? Am I going to concoct a scheme for myself? But yet what we find, and this is just, this is amazing, even when we do create those messes for ourselves, God, in fact, uses those very things to accomplish the thing that he wants to have happen in our life. Let me give you an example of this from, from Acts 2. Peter stands up to preach to the people at Pentecost. And he looks at them and essentially says, you have created a mess. You've killed your own Messiah. You've killed your own Messiah. You've been waiting and praying for thousands of years and you killed him. You didn't believe in him. You didn't trust in him. You murdered him. And then almost as an aside, he says, and, and by the way, this was all according to the plan of God. This was, this was all part of his foreordained plan. In fact, it was through your mess and through your disobedience that I'm accomplishing my will to save every one of you if you'll just repent, if you'll just obey, if you'll just turn. Do do you see the parallel in this passage? Here's what we want to learn from this. If we're in a mess this morning, faith is always the best option. Obedience is always the best path. Obedience and faith are, they sort of what I would kind of call grease the skids of mercy for God to pour into our lives. Those points of faith and obedience may not always make sense. They certainly on many levels didn't for Abraham. And we're going to find out next week the supreme test of Abraham's faith. But it's how mercy is found within the mess. Let me ask you a question, Four Oaks. Where do you need to see the eyes? Where do you need the eyes of faith to see God 
working in your own life in that way? Where do, you, where do, you, where do you need to see to have the eyes of faith to see that, that it's not that God has abandoned you in your mess? In fact, it's through the mess, because of the mess, that God is doing his most important work for you and in you. Because where do you need that heart of faith? Where do you need new eyes to see? Isn't it interesting, and I've already get, I gave you my theory last time and uh, several weeks ago from chapter 16, why I think Hagar could have very well been exercising genuine faith in, in God. But listen to what it says here, and this is, and I think this might give credence to that. Look at verse 19, or, or back up to verse 17. Remember, Hagar and Ishmael are in the desert, and they're both dying. And Ishmael's a little worse off than she is. And so she leaves him under a tree to go off by herself because she can't bear the idea of watching her own son die. But then it says in verse 19, what? Then God opened her eyes. God opened her eyes. See, that's, that's, that's literally, she was able to see this spring of water, this oasis of water. But I think it means far more. And I think it means far more for us. Our prayer in the midst of our mess is that God would open our eyes. That God would give us the eyes of faith. And as he gives us the eyes of faith, we are empowered to obedience. And as we're empowered to obedience, the skids of God's mercy are greased in our hearts and our lives. On one condition, that you belong to him that you belong to Jesus, that you are a part of that line of promise. Here's the way Paul describes this in Galatians 4. He says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, listen, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So here's what Paul's done. He's taken the examples of Isaac and Ishmael and how both were conceived, and now he's going to use an illustration. And he says, don't be children like Ishmael. In other words, don't think all of this is on you. You've got to figure it out. You've got to, you've got to fix your own mess. You've got to work your way back to God. You've got to pay your penance. You've got to, this is, this is up to you to get yourself out of the hole that's been dug. Paul said, that's not faith. That's the way of Ishmael. That's, that's the works of the flesh. Paul says, instead, be like the child of the free woman and recognize, God, it is only by your mercy God, it is only by your grace. I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I can't, I can't do enough penance. I can't make enough restitution. God, you are going to have to be the one to raise me up. So God, give me eyes of faith. And through those eyes of faith, show me what does obedience look like to you. See, all of our instincts, natural instincts, human instincts, right, is to be, and I just made this word up, Ishmaelian in our tendencies, right? To, 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 to go figure it out, to operate in the flesh, to do it on our own. But God wants to remind us, remind you, 
that his mercy and his grace is the most important reality in your life. It's the most important factor that's working in your life if, if you know him. Do you know him? Do you know this Christ? Run to him this morning. Trust in him. Place your faith in him. Hope in him. And let him pour his mercy out on your mess. Let's pray.